$25. A year ago, it was fucking $50. Ladies and gentlemen, hold on, wait. Cheers me, bro. Cheers me, bro. I'm about to drop that absolute knowledge. Oh, I don't even have the Seagrams anymore on here. And I actually cracked one. That's insane. Uh, <clears throat> That's actually. Sorry, insane. I don't have the sample. One second. Seagrams. So nice. Drink happiness. Uh huh. <laughs> that was the exact. That was the exact sample we did at. <laughs> hey everyone. Who says I don't know music? Besides the last episode. We're gonna get real loose with this one because no one's gonna listen. That's not true, man. Besides the samurai, we'll shout out. Now we can post it to the fucking classy groups. Dude. You can post it to the classy groups because I'm not in them. I'm in the movie blues rental zone. 24 hours Listen, a day. Movie Blues rental zone people. Yeah. The time has come for you to just trust us and watch something outside your comfort zone in mm-hmm. the interest of sticking with the podcast. Because <laughs> next week, it's my next pick. You probably haven't seen either. <laughs> next week, though, is is more of a, I think we'll, we'll sing a little bit better in terms of um, its overall accessibility. Uh, Deadly Friend is just a delight. <laughs> When's the last time you watched Wes Craven's Deadly Friend? Um, freshman year of college. Okay. Do you know my whole history with Wes Craven's Deadly Friend? I don't, but we'll save it for the episode because, God, I can't wait to get there well, and find out. Yeah, and I mean, it can be a little teaser for next season. Oh, okay, tee it up. Or for tee next it up, week. daddy. But we can do it at the end of this episode. Go it's for fine. it. No, it's fine. Do it. No. Do it! Are you just fucking fuck me? What? Now you're going to kill me? I'm just going to say that Wes Craven's Deadly Friend is a movie that I searched for for 25 years. Oh, yeah. This is the one. Right. And we've talked about this in the podcast before that everyone's got their movie, right? That they think in this, their mind. This was my last dinosaur. And no, last dinosaur isn't that for me. No, but that's where this came up in that episode about <clears throat> a movie from the childhood that just disappeared from the ethos that you had to like track down. I, as you know. And I want to just do this as a quick tri- tribute to that experience because we'll never get to actually do it. But I traced one movie down my entire life up until like a year and a half ago. And I... What movie is that? When I say I've done research, I mean, this is this was literally Ahab in the fucking whale. 100%. I've spent every waking hour of my like extra consciousness and time... Uh, when you're laying in bed and you're just Googling random shit and you're watching funny videos, once during that session, like per week for 20 years, I have looked for a movie in which a woman commits suicide in front of her child, shoots herself in the head with a gun in a rocking chair in an all white room. And it was in a movie about virtual reality. Those okay. are the only keywords that, okay. I, that I ever had. And for decades, it took me searching and it's almost it's almost how the lodge started a year and a half ago i finally out of nowhere because they recommissioned a dvd of this movie which i then bought and had told you at the time i'm going to bring to the podcast this was my white whale okay i watched it and just felt like it was too similar to lawnmower man in enough ways that it just it there wasn't enough there but it's a movie called arcade starring seth green Oh, yeah, yeah. From when he was a little kid. Dude, I remember. Yes, you told Um, me about this, and then I looked it up, and I 100% saw that movie as a kid. No way. Yes, 100% on, like, the WB. No shit. Like, while sick at home, yeah. Same. 
Like mine was like a daytime memory of being home as a yeah. kid, yeah, yeah. seeing it and being like, holy shit, that is really scarring. A- as a kid, I had strep throat a lot. I was like a carrier or right. I'm a carrier or whatever. So I got it at least once a year, like absolute minimum where I'd be home from school for like a week. That is insane. And that was one of the things that for like probably two years was like on rotation. Maybe I will put Arcade back in the mix at some point. I'd like to watch that. It it, it had some funny aspects to it. It's about a... Uh, a CEO of a video game company that shows up at an arcade one day and like installs a new game that essentially is like evil. Um, but it includes the reason I didn't want to do it. It includes so much CGI inside of a VR experience footage, even more than lawnmower man that I was like, I can't do this to Dan twice. <laughs> I don't yeah, think yeah. he wants to do that. that. But hearing that you had any kind of connection with it, maybe we should uh, visit yeah. that. But that all right. So yeah, that's an app comparison. That was my West Craven's deadly friend, and how I found it was because of the podcast. Was because we did the scream episode, and I went down a West Craven internet rabbit hole. Wow. So you're welcome. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah, scream. The new screams out. People are loving it. It's going to be on the sequel season spinner. That, I, that I'd like. I, it's killing me not to watch that now. You can't. I know. You'd have to go to a theater. This is how we suffer for our art. <laughs> Christ. We're not doing another Patois skit, Dan. <laughs> the Chet Hanks is looming over us. You hear me now? <laughs> Everything gonna be out of it. <laughs> See, you made it You weird. must travel through the planet uh, core. <laughs> See, you made it weird immediately. Sorry, dude. I mean, that's me, though. Surprise, motherfucker. Um, Get this game board out of my face. Dan, <laughs> let's not talk about that because I don't know the chronology in which this is going to release. But um, welcome, everybody, to the Movie Blues podcast. Uh, this is our second episode of the day. Take that as you will. I think you know what that means and where that's headed. And I am Dan Lyons. Dan Eden. And we, uh, we're hanging out. We're hanging out. I was going to use the same term. We're hanging out. Nice. We're going to discuss a real film yeah, strap from in. a real filmmaker. But... There is, <laughs> there is something to be said about this movie, Dan. There's plenty of things to be said about this movie. I want to get it straight up front okay. for our listeners that this was Dan Enden's choice. Okay. <laughs> I don't think anyone Why? had any doubt of that. Why do I bring that up? Now, I've had classic films on the podcast. We've watched Barry Lyndon and such. This is... I think the oldest film to ever be reviewed on this podcast. I 1958. Think so too. Yeah. The listener, so, if you're coming in new or coming in hot, <laughs> you should know that the majority of the movies I watch are from around this era. But 
But and. But, but and. and. Yes. Whereas most people would turn this episode off right now and be like, I will absolutely not listen to this. I implore you to listen to this episode, not because of how drunk and stoned I am, <laughs> but because this is another classic entry into <laughs> the Dan and in verse, baby. We are back at it again in the Dan and in verse with all of his tropes and favorite things. And he didn't even know it was going to be like that for this movie. No way, dude. But oh, no. believe it or not, this anti-police. Wait, 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 wait. Dude, the lost noise. <laughs> yeah. I meant to bring it up earlier. Um, I had a confession to make to you. Sure. Which is that I think I'm ready to restart Lost. No! Do you want me to give you the Bible back? No, no, that's fine. I surely don't need it. Is it in my house or is it in yours right now? It's right behind you. Oh, I mean, you absolutely, if you're going to rewatch Lost, should take the Blu-ray version. Wait, you didn't watch it on the Blu-ray version. No, I streamed it all. Oh, you should definitely take the box. Does it look sick? Oh, it's fucking awesome, dude. The transfer is just incredible. And the special features are amazing in that really? box. So what there's, I, what I'm there's whole discs What I'm struggling with is that I'm finally back in the rhythm of like using all my free time to watch movies instead of play video Damn. game. And, and I'm like, if I start watching Lost, I'm not going to watch a movie for another month. And I want you to brace yourself with the next thing that I'm about to tell you. Okay. But many episodes in the Lost box set behind you have commentary from Damon Lindelof and, uh, and uh, Carlton Cuse. Yeah, anyone that has commentary me to watch that instead, for sure. There is so much commentary on the best episodes, like Abiterno, the ones about um, yeah, like yeah. the background yeah. of Richard. That's and, what daddy wants. Uh, dude, it's all in there. Yeah. Uh, I've gone through that. Believe me, it's <laughs> it's as involving as watching the show in the first Lost, place. 10 out of 10. 10 out of 10. Anyway, um, today on the podcast, we're going to be talking about the Orson Welles film, A Touch of gravy evil I'm <laughs> touch sorry. of evil now i want to it's an orson welles picture i want to tee up just at least one thing right off the bat that fucking annihilated me in this movie was that do, do you not want to tell the people what it's about oh no no no. we're gonna get there okay but i want to start with just the most simple aspect of it now okay if we know who orson welles is hopefully the listener knows who Orson Welles is. And is that your Orson Welles? No, or, we're going to get it. Is that your Tiny Toons doing fucking, uh, what's his face from Casablanca? That's my, a little mix of that and the critics version of Orson Welles. Yeah. yeah. So Where Tiny he's Toons. like, yeah. all, he's almost like Igor. You mean Animaniacs version? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Welcome, dear <laughs> listener. Um, this is a fine champagne. Um, Dude, Orson Welles, what a fucking... White legend. Right. That is what I want to talk about first. Okay. Before we get into the movie, um, I want to talk about Orson Welles, not only as a figure, but in this movie and the paradigm and time travel experience that I had watching it. Because when I started this movie, dot, 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 but and, um, I was like, wow, this is in black and white. That's unfortunate. How old is this movie? Then we That's see. That's what happened when you started the picture? Then we see Orson Welles. So you did zero pre. I had no idea what I was getting into. Okay. I was you had no idea it was black and white. Babe in the Woods. It's an Orson Welles one. picture. There's like fucking four that are not in black and white. Babe in the Woods for okay. this one. Because I've never seen it. I didn't know what decade it was from. Okay. 
we are shown Orson Welles very early on in the picture. And I'm before we get into the plot, going to say that never seen him look so terrible in my life. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, yeah. He, he is absolutely ghastly looking in this movie. He's like double fatter than Chris Farley. He is sweating and profusely yeah, he is, he is sleek. Foul. He's disgusting in yeah, this yeah. movie. Terrible shape. So, and like, especially it's jarring for something from back then. Right. Because like everyone is so fit back then, dude. Yeah, I mean, every movie you watch from back then, you never see an overweight person no. unless they're like a comedic relief. Let alone someone who's like bigger than Brandon Fraser in the whale naturally. Um, and so he is so massive in this movie, and that's where I went into this world of confusion. <laughs> I was like, why is Orson Welles so fucking fat in this movie? I've never seen him look this fat, and I know Orson Welles is a public figure almost more than a director, right? For me, Orson Welles, I don't... Isn't, didn't you say you haven't seen all I haven't of seen Citizen, Citizen Kane? What's that? Didn't you say on this podcast you haven't seen all of Citizen Kane? I haven't sat down and watched Citizen Kane since I was in high school. I watched it in my video class and tried watching it at home as a more serious watch and got like three-fourths into it and that was it. But I know the home stretch is the most exciting part of the movie. I know Are you kidding what me? happens in it, and I do would say that I am a fan of that movie. I just never watched it again. You know, there's a, a sick ass 4K release of it. I would love to watch that because, like, I, this movie did set my interest ablaze about watching more of his movies. For me, though, I grew up being a tremendous fan of Orson Welles the person because yeah, yeah. I grew up obsessed with the Orson Welles. War of the Worlds broadcast. Right. Yeah, yeah. I heard it when I was like five or six years old. Oh, really? And heard it on my grandparents, to be more technical, my Bubby and my Zeta's record player. They had an LP yeah. of the broadcast. Yeah, yeah. And it played through. I, ha I have one now. I should have brought it, dude. It played through like a netted speaker. Like how old 70s, 60s speakers had almost this like netting in front of them like soft i remember sitting next to Absolutely. it and listening to it and and i would attribute it as one of the most eye-opening moments of my entire life was listening to the war of the worlds and not knowing much to anything about it and being involved in it as if it were real and then hearing the story afterwards about how it was presented as real and and that was for me, that's Orson Welles in my mind. Is but that in and of the itself. The creative genius who would do something like that. Yeah. Um, his films, which I did at one point go through, I can't even name half of the few that there are while he was in America before he made. Oh, yeah, there's very some, few. Some before. weird ones uh, yeah. in Mexico and beyond, but I. But this was his last one before. Sure. This was his last one made in the U.S. And you surely can see why that is the case. It's not a conventional movie by any means. And you see fat Orson Welles up front. And let me just take you on my mental journey because... Wait, wait, wait. Can we not go beyond War of the Worlds yet? Yeah, no, 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 no. We're not, uh, we're not doing the plot yet. I just want to say that... Um, oh, you don't want to go past War of the Worlds, you're saying? You have something to say about it? Yeah. Go I ahead. I to say that I... Um, you know, I, the first time the War of the Worlds thing was exposed to me was like either late elementary school or early middle school, like quote-unquote history class. It would be like a blurb in a book uh -huh. talking about like how like it used to be so crazy before the televisions. 
Um, right. And I was also someone who would like, you know, go to my grandparents and like listen to their old radio. That's exactly how you describe hmm. with the fucking net, everything like yep. in their basement, like just hang out and listen to old fucking 45s of shit. And then, you know, I learned that in school and I was like, that fucking interests me. And like, that was one of the first things I downloaded on like Napster, like in like fifth grade. And that had such an impact on like my path towards like giving a shit about any of this shit. And then in like freshman year theater class um, in high school, she played it. And I was like, I need to know what's going on with this guy. And she was like, I have Citizen Kane DVD in my office. I will lend it to you. Right. And I was like, fuck yes. It was the Criterion DVD, bro. It was my first Criterion experience. I was like, there's two discs and a thousand bonus features. Uh And I destroyed everything Citizen Kane related. (laughs) Everything, dude. Uh Um, I saw the sled, dude. I saw it IRL face to face when I was at the Academy Museum. California yeah. was literally nose to nose with Rosebud. I know Bud. that's so sick. It, Where in California is that? Um, it's called the Academy uh, Museum. What part of California? It's in like L.A., right outside of L.A. So nowhere near San Francisco. Uh, you'd have to drive a couple hours, but I mean, yeah. if you've never gone to, you're going to be in San Francisco then. Yeah, a couple months. I mean, dude, I I love San Francisco. I am a huge proponent proponent of San Diego and L.A. as well. Um, you don't get a complete picture of California by only going to San Francisco because San Francisco is kind of like more of a propped up, like insulated idea. Well, we're going to be like 40 minutes outside San Francisco in like some fucking woods. But also we are, we are going to see the San Francisco giants on fireworks night, the baseball stadium I've most wanted to go to. This is not what we're doing. Let's go. That's fair though. Cause I talked about a museum that you should talk about a baseball stadium. They're the same. (laughs) <laughs> Dude, my bachelor party might be at the Baseball Hall of Fame. Oh, god damn, please. I reached out. They do packages. Does that mean I have to go there, right? You don't have to do anything, <laughs> but... if you, you bailed out of mine, if you, you remember. I do remember. So, I have a token to bail out of it. Don't make it all baseball-related. Dan... I can't express to you enough. Like you know, I did do for my friend Jared. I did do a WWF live at the Barclays Center. Yeah, um, that's a blast. That's not something I would have done, and my car got towed. Did you have fun? I had a great. Yeah, time. it's a blast. Well, because I like watching other people enjoy things that they like, not because I had a blast. I thought it was terrible. But do you think I, you would enjoy watching me read metal placards describing like twenties baseball players? That's already what I feel like this podcast is. So no, I would not <laughs> enjoy that at all. That's, actually. How you rage a bachelor party, Dan. Jesus Christ, Dan. We can eat Molly and go to the Baseball Hall of Fame. I'll do no such thing. (laughs) And if my parents are listening to this after my death looking for clues, (laughs) I never ate Molly. That was Dan Endon's thing. Dude, what? I'm just kidding. Are you kidding? It was more my thing. Hold on to your butts. Um, My God. Touch of Evil. (laughs) Touch of Evil. Was not a movie I was mentally prepared for. Oh, in any oh way. Here, yeah. And here's what I wanted to say about that is sure. that what I've learned from the exercise of this season is right. that I had a couple moments, you know, as I imagine you did also, where I'm like, God damn it, why is Dan making me watch this fucking movie? But then the realization I had. That's not quite what I felt here. Okay. Well, I felt it numerous times. But 
the realization I had jumping from Jurassic World to this movie back to back was that yeah. at the end of the day, like we put effort into and host a movie podcast. Sure. And like while I have no misgivings about the movies I spend my time watching, the reality is like I know that my scope of film watching is like incredibly narrow. And there's so much shit that I would just never see if it weren't for you, like, shoving it down my throat. Mm -hmm. So, like, while I was watching Touch of Evil, I had a couple moments where I was just, like, in fuck, like, levitating above a pyramid and being, like, <laughs> if Dan might fucking hate this and that's going to suck. But then I was like, you know what? Like, what other outlet do I have to, like, force my best friend to watch a movie from the 50s sure. that, like, he wouldn't otherwise, no matter how many times? Just the way that there's movies all the time. You're like, you need to watch Benedetta. Right. And then it wasn't until someone was, like, selling one on 4K on Ready yesterday that I was like, maybe I should watch Benedetta. You downloaded Benedetta or you're going to buy it? No, I'm going to get the 4K of it. Oh, okay, because, you know, that was on the list for a while. I know. This is that was saying. even in a trailer, a video trailer for one season. They never did it. I know. So it's I'm, funny. I'm going to get the 4K from this guy. Um, the, the point is, the, the point is, <laughs> right. I have no idea your read on this movie. Right. What would you say it is at this point? I feel like you thought it was middling. Okay. Um, But... Can I ask you something? Yeah. Just man to man. Yeah. yeah. In all in all seriousness, is there a way that you couldn't find this movie middling in some way or another? Yeah, for sure, for sure. <laughs> like this movie is clearly middling. So yeah, I don't agree with that at all. Oh, you don't think so? No. I think this movie. No, is... I love this movie. <laughs> I think this movie is got a lot going for it, a lot, and the things that are wrong with it. No matter what version I watched of it, they're wrong. Were so wrong. Well, no, but the theatrical version is, I feel, a lot more convoluted. So let, let's get this straight up front. Will you please explain which uh, versions of this movie exist and why they exist to the listener in case they haven't seen or heard of Orson Welles's Touch of Evil? Okay, so most people are probably aware that like Orson Welles' general reputation as like the first genius auteur of American Hollywood movie making was very difficult with the studios, a lot of clashes, a lot of disagreements. This is kind of the movie that was like the gold standard for that, which led to him like basically fleeing the country to make movies on his own. Very misguided efforts in numerous <laughs> occasions. Like, I don't know if you've seen any of these like I have not. Dude. Absalom? <sighs> there is that, some... is that one of them? Uh, yeah. Because that I've seen. Um, Anything after that, I have not seen. Dan, Orson Welles' career after this is fucking wild. Yeah, no Have you ever shit. seen F for Fake? No. It's... Uh, I'll, whatever. All right. The point is... Actually, no. You're bringing up, you're bringing up what is going to be the, the heart of my, my take, really, which is that what you just said is clear as day in this movie. That this was, in my opinion, watching a man come to terms with his own career in Hollywood and his own existence on planet earth and having that last gasp before truly overindulging himself. And but you dude, can see it in this movie. It's visually stunning. Let's not talk. Not, let's not talk about that yet. Okay. Because if I'm being frank, of course it is visually stunning. I think it's gorgeous because it's worth well. Because it's Orson Welles. But like, and because, and what's most interesting about doing this experiment, 
And I need to get back to the original point I was trying to make here. There are multiple levels of these cuts that... Oh, we... yeah, wait. I was supposed to explain what the cuts are. Yeah. So the one um, for this, I bought Dan a three goddamn disc box set of Touch of Evil... 4k every version you bought that for me i thought i was giving that back to you no no i bought you. that's for you you have it the same copy yeah oh my god okay so i will get to watch the preview cut yes yeah <laughs> right. um this this movie you have to realize i right. i didn't bring it with me but i sent dan a picture i have a copy from when i originally got it on netflix through the mail and i didn't want to give it back so i just fucking charged and paid to keep it it's in the original Netflix sleeve. This movie, I'm not a film noir guy at all. Honestly, this is the movie we should have had Josh Boyer on for because he's a huge noir guy, and I feel like he hasn't seen this, and he would fucking love it. But, like, for a genre that I don't like at all, this movie is, like, a visual fucking masterclass of, like, just black and white shadow using. That's so fucking awesome, dude. And like, mm, I think let, this is an oversell. Hold on. I think you're going way too far. A lot of the movie is wildly wrongheaded. As a, uh, yeah, I, I, we have to take this in pieces. Yeah, yeah. Because there's a lot to unpack here. Yeah. Plot wise, this movie has some shit to be reckoned with. I'm just saying, in I, terms, you cannot find a noir, a black and white noir that looks better than this movie. That's what I'm going to say. I don't think that's true. Okay. But maybe the killing. Maybe. Having said that, I see that this movie is like the route to a lot of other movies. I see that there are things like, and this has been um, said by the guy who made it, that L.A. Confidential was hugely inspired by this movie. There is a movie called Chinatown <laughs> that does a lot that is very similar to this movie. Oh, yeah. Um, in, in its structure, in its execution, and in its vibe. I don't very much like that movie either. You don't like Chinatown? No. Really? No. Oh, I love Chinatown. Chinatown is gorgeous and a geniusly constructed movie, and my man Jack, on fire as per usual. Okay, so it makes sense. That but this... I find it wildly boring. So that makes sense that this movie didn't do it for you. I find L.A. Confidential more engaging than Chinatown. Than Chinatown because I'm more of an idiot. This is what I'm saying about the like the this us watching movie, disparate things, dude. Like I I can't wrap my head around that view. Well, there are things that are so wrong-headed in the story department, organization, editing and execution of this film that are apart from its visuals that you're praising that make it really tough to full send is some kind of masterpiece. I feel like this is a masterpiece. Don't get me wrong. I don't think it's a masterpiece because it's the dude who made Citizen Kane. Well, then you got to take it at a real different level because that's the that's really the driving force of praising this film. And in all of the interviews I've watched and the research I've done, the people that are praising this movie are like the true cinephiles of the world. The true auteurs of the world i get what this movie is and is going for and what's good about it i don't think that this is a terrible movie i don't think this is like some kind of sh piece of shit or anything i think that it's very flawed 
and uh, both cuts of it that I watched because as Dan was getting to, there are two cuts. Right. One all right. Cut, I still didn't say what there was. All right, one there's cut. The, there's which, the, all right. Do your, fuck. fuck. No, you lost. No, you lost now. Um, random button alert. Ooh, <laughs> Nice. So the preview cut. Um, so the two cuts that I watched for this experience <laughs> that Dan sent me, which I'm very glad to have because while I think this this is a masterpiece, I also think that this is a, an important piece of cinema history. And the story of it definitely um, informs my like romanticization of it for sure. I'm glad to have um, it in my collection. It's nice to have classy stuff every once in a while and new stuff to educate Kino myself Lorber with. killing it with the fucking Kino Lorber's got some crazy the shit. The packaging. Yeah. Dude, touch more, it. Where, where, is there more special features though? Yes. Than, okay, I need yes. to get into Each them. disc has one. Alright, so um, again, the cut that I watched first was the theatrical cut which was including many uh scenes that were reshot without the participation of orson wells after the film to quote unquote clarify elements of the film but here here's the we have we have to real quick the middle disc the one that you didn't watch is the preview cut okay but let's not confuse people too much with the preview cut because i didn't know but it. chronologically this is what makes the most sense just, all right fine, just, fine, all, right, fine. all right so the preview cut was the first cut that Orson Welles made. People do test screenings, as you know, etc. So the preview cut is the first cut that got shown to test audiences who freaked out and fucking hated it. So the theatrical cut, which is the first one that Dan watched, right. was the result of the studio freaking out, recutting a lot of the movie, um, trying to get Janet Lee and Charlton Heston to reshoot scenes for it. They did. Um, they both tried to boycott it in solidarity, but... Got just via lawyers. It would have cost them eight thousand yeah, dollars. Yeah, their contracts made them do it. Um, so they fucking reshot shit. And I know you said that you didn't. You saw the movies as very similar, but I went back, Dan. There's like very distinct things that are so fucking different that really impact the difference between this being like a good movie and a great movie. We're make. going to get into that, but I highly disagree with that sentiment and think the that sound mixing is. The sound mixing is not anything that I was focusing on in terms of what made one cut better than the other. The sound mixing of the um, restored cut had all kinds of issues in it. There were scenes that were clearly incomplete. The it's restored the cut first movie that we ever had localized Dan, we fucking soundtracks. We Dan. still haven't that. I don't care about any of that. That wasn't something that came up in any of my notes, in any of my thoughts. That has no bearing you watch on a documentary. Whatsoever. That's what George Lucas was going on about. He's like in American Graffiti. We also had the idea Damn. to have someone walking down a road with Damn. different soundtracks. If you're gonna tell me the difference between two cuts is sound mixing, like I, no, I, I, no. I'm, wa I'm watching Dan in the in the theatrical cut. The Janet Lee subplot is totally different. It's not set up as like a it's, fucking. It's not it like was a multiple bad timeline movie and at weird all. In both, <sighs> dude. The Janet Lee subplot is clearly inferior and mismanaged in both cuts in different it's ways. But it's supposed to make you feel the separation between her character and Charlton Heston, it which did, I feel the, restore, very, the real Stewart cut does in a very successful way. Again, the two cuts that I watched first were <laughs> the theatrical cut that the studio had wrestled away from Orson Welles. And the second cut that I watched was made in 1998 by a bunch of Orson Welles psychopaths. 
Bunch of nerds. Who decided to execute the plans laid out in a 58-page memo that Orson Welles wrote up about everything that was wrong with what the studio had done to his film. And he's correct. When you read the memo, he's Ex- correct. Excuse me. First of all, there are historically auteurs and genius directors who would disagree with that statement. But there are things that, stop, that he stop, was changing stop, of his own stop. decisions. Firstly, there are people that do not hold the same position as you. One of those people is Paul Verhoeven that I read about, who came out and said that the theatrical cut was a better experience than the restored cut. That is psychotic. In 1998. That's I don't think that that's psychotic because I'll tell you why. I don't think that... The theatrical and I don't cut agree. is incredibly convoluted. I don't agree. And I don't... They're both convoluted, Dan. They're both convoluted. And one doesn't excuse the sins of the other. It expounds on it in certain ways, but it does not free up what is bizarre and mismanaged in the mid-half and later half. Season. It's for sure bizarre. It's an incredibly bizarre picture. It is an... To me, not an auteur firing on all cylinders. That is clearly Citizen Kane. You watch it. Every single frame is art. This is like him about to spin off the tracks. And I don't know. I don't agree with this at all. I think this is his best looking movie by far. I just feel like this was it for him. And it this reflects movie has that a in the history This 12-minute single cut, Dan. That's fine. It's just like... It's, it's impressive inc- for what it is incredible. visually. It's incredible. Yeah, as a story, it's extremely flawed and bizarre and clearly written by a a person who had a lot of hangups about a lot of different things. The story is really bizarre, Dan. To be clear, this is not a 10 out of 10. Citizen Kane is a 10 out of 10. This is not a 10 out of 10, but this is... If you don't see what's fucking... Like, without this movie, the amount of shit that does not exist currently, like, this movie is fucking... Noir? What? No, in terms of filmmaking techniques, Dan... Every, okay, Tarant- I, I, every Tarantino fucking trick about causing the fucking off-screen drama of watching someone walk off frame, have a conversation, and come back in, that all comes from this movie. And this is a dude in 1957, while filming this, having to block a 12-minute scene that goes around an entire interior. It's fucking genius, man. Yeah, you're not saying anything that I didn't agree with in the first two minutes of this. And yet the problems with this movie are indefensible and exist. The plot. Uh, what, just because the plot's totally insane and racist, we have problems? Yeah, now? Dan, <laughs> it is. We haven't, like, <laughs> you may envision this as, like, you, you may be on top of me in some situation. It's not true. I'm not at the disadvantage here. Like, I literally I, watched both of these movies I don't feel you're at the with the most critical eye humanly imaginable, and both of them stink for different reasons. Okay. Now, what you're saying about tracking shots and the like has been published a thousand times over. And I'm not here to argue with that. I didn't come in saying this movie looks like shit and is shot terribly. I'm coming in saying that the movie being presented here is gorgeous to look at. Sure. So is fucking Avatar, but it's interior story is an absolute mess. But I just feel like you are such a big Hitchcock fan and so much of Hitchcock's top work is like if you take away the filmmaking brilliance of it is relative could be relatively boring and so much of it there's such a clear shift post this movie where Hitchcock's style is so impacted by this noir is a perfect genre for you because it's over convoluted self smart (laughs) and tells a story that could just have been A to B if not for all of its obfuscation and this movie is that kind of movie and it appeals to an intellectual I understand that and 
I used to be that person who would look for a movie like this and try to go hog wild for it. Now I'm the kind of person that's like, I don't want to see Charlton Heston act like he is a Mexican for two fucking hours yeah. of a movie. Let's be clear. Let's get it started. The biggest no, fall. let's get it started here, Dan, <laughs> of this fucking lauded masterpiece yeah. that you're going Charlton on about. Heston. That Charlton Heston, the head of the fucking he's NRA, in, he's in is Mexican playing a face. fucking Mexican. He's a Mexican with a unibrow. His face is entire... painted dark brown. It's so wild. And oh, this is like not not <laughs> devoid of being able to be criticized like not this, what i'm saying this not is what i'm saying this Dad. okay everything that orson welles touched in one way inspired some hack fucking auteur of the 90s or 80s whenever understandable this is why you don't understand oh, oh this is why there's conversations in quentin tarantino movies yeah yeah he copies every single good director i understand that this is this is why movie. you don't appreciate baseball dan because you don't appreciate history this movie is Bad Dan. It is gorgeously made. It is this expertly executed, but bad, clearly it's really. made by a dude who that is, is starting to spin off the tracks creatively. Bad? A 58-page memo about what? Both movies suffer the same problems. I watched both cuts of these. I enjoyed what I could from both. One thing that I wanted to mention really far up front that I never even got into was that when I started watching this movie, Orson Welles looked very fat. We've talked about this a bunch of times. Yeah, the fattest. But what I did not know and what confused me about why this movie was in black and white is because I've seen Orson Welles in the 60s, 70s, greased up, <laughs> selling wine. <laughs> like the true genius that he is. And in those videos, he very much talks like this. I would like you to try this wine, blah, blah, blah. And he's not like that in this movie. No. And this movie is in black and white. So I'm like, what? I'm having this like existential crisis. I'm like, what do I really know about Orson Welles? I thought that he started at point A and became fatter and uglier and more disgusting. And yet I'm watching a black and white picture when I've seen so yeah. much color footage of him. You've seen the Alpha and the Omega. Where he looks 10 times worse. And I messaged you and was like, what is going on? He looks 10 times worse. Dan, he's in 60 pounds of prosthetics. They gave him a fake nose. They put a huge fat suit on him. These were not things that I knew. And I was watching this being like, <laughs> what has happened to this man? He had peaks and valleys. Did you know all of that? Yeah. I had no clue. And I'm watching it like so confused. Like why is Orson Welles look like the worst he's ever worked? And, and cause and his I'll character it, is dude, despicable. I'll give it to him. This is one of my favorite performances I've ever seen from him. Then you can he's be 10 out of 10 in this movie. You can be that fat when your cock is that big. He's like, he comes in, he's like, who did the crime? <laughs> and, and then you have Charlton Heston who is playing a Mexican named Vargas. Whose paint, whose face he's literally is painted. painted black, yeah. and he's like, "Capacho, amigo, what do you think about that, big boy?" It's fucking crazy. And Orson Welles is like, "Because here's the deal: we we got we pulled him over, we put dynamite in his truck, and then Charlton Heston, who's a Mexican, is like, and that's the whole nacho, right, burrito?'" <laughs> it, dude, it, you, it, if you can watch this movie and be like, "Yup." 
yeah, this is like Barry Lyndon, like nailed it, like toward his finest. There are so many missteps, Dan. Dan, he came into this movie, Orson Welles, and changed his character to a Mexican. When Orson <laughs> Welles came into making this movie, he did not read the book that it was based on until after he finished filming it. Yeah, like an artist. These are facts of a dude who was spiraling out of control with his love of white wine and shrimp and was so out of control that he needed to be sent to Mexico permanently yeah. to execute the rest of his shitty career. You can tell that, th dude, throughout the movie, I was wondering, like, in almost every scene, he's asking for donuts or candy bars, and I was wondering... It's real, Dan! <laughs> Some of these are not on purpose. This is what I'm saying. He's like, I need my character to be eating. He's like, so what? So what? So what kind of food does everyone have in here? And they're like, dude, <laughs> you are moist. You make ET look dry. He's dripping. And he's like, it's it's because I used to drink. Yeah, I have Dan, a note that literally Dan, said Dan. Orson Welles. Supposed is he supposed to eat the entire time in the script, or did he just need candy bars in real life? Dan, the biggest ask that this movie makes. Now, this is a movie in which Charlton Heston, head of the NRA, <laughs> is playing a Mexican lawyer <laughs> in a border town, fictional, with no research done on it, filmed in California. He is playing a Mexican person. <laughs> The biggest ask in this movie is not that. Okay. The biggest ask in this movie is that Orson Welles is not drunk in the first half. <laughs> Seriously. But is drunk in the right. second half yeah, and yeah. falls off the wagon. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. in the first scene in this movie, again, like you said, the actors are all 50s, trained, trimmed. They're all like, so what happened here, boss? And he's like, looks like we've got a car bomb. Looks like it's going to be one of these border crimes that we're always used to. And they're like, what do you think about it, Orson? And he's like, I think... <laughs> Because you're a dirty liar, and I was the one who thought of the crime with the with the car, and that's why I plant the evidence, and that's the touch of evil. I touched the evidence. I put it in the car. And you're supposed to believe that he is sober yeah, in the yeah, beginning. The the He's out of his but fucking to be clear, mind from, from, from what Dan just said, the, the moral of this picture is that the police are crooked. And that, dear listener, is going to bring us back to the first point of this episode, where I said that clearly this is a choice for Dan Endon. Because <laughs> once again, Dan has picked a defund police movie. <laughs> um, and even though he somehow can twist his brain into being mad at me about this movie when it has full-on blackface in I'm it. I'm not mad. Full-on blackface in it. That's okay. It, it has, but when two kids it are trying Dan to, face. Uh, you're not mad. When two kids <laughs> are trying to just get into Harvard, it's a huge problem. <laughs> Dan, this movie has a retarded nightman in it. <laughs> it does. Which was in both cuts. That part. You know what this kind I of had forgotten about. <laughs> I'm in a, you ready for the ultimate comparison for what this movie is closest to? Yeah. Prepare yourself for my lizard brain. The closest thing the experience of watching both of these cuts to is to watching the um, Snyder cut and watching <laughs> the regular 2017 uh, cut of Justice League. Both are the same movie. And this, I want to see how many comparisons I can even draw here. Both are basically the same movie. 
If you were to see them once on an airplane, you would have mostly the same recollection about both. That I can say about both cuts of this movie and the Snyder Cut and the original. One has slight tonal differences and slight, like, exterior setups to new locations that the other does not. That, again, is flush for both the Snyder Cut The soundtrack's and very this. different in important ways. The soundtrack in the Snyder Cut and it, the regular cut are two different composers, Junkie XL and Dan really? Elfman. The who did which? color grading. Wait, wait, who did which? Um, uh, Danny Elfman did, I think, a superior job on the 2017 cut. Really? And um, I only saw the Snyder cut. Yeah, I love Danny Elfman's score for it. Actually, why would you change a Danny Elfman score? Cause because more you're movie. Zach Snyder. I hate that guy. I hate him too. <laughs> Here Just we the are. Absolute worst. Um, I hate that dude. Both... Friendly reminder to listeners to the podcast. Yeah. If you like Sucker Punch. Fuck you. Both cuts of Zack Snyder's uh, Justice League and Orson Welles' Touch of Evil were made um, many, many years after the original cut. Both cuts were wrestled out of the original director's hands. Both cuts... I'm just coming up with this now, so I may hit a wall at some point, but... <laughs> Both cuts are f flagged and plagued with the same issues as each other, but one of them does a better job of expounding on it than the other in a way that is better for a completionist's eye, but overall still convoluted. That it goes goes for both movies. So yes, the closest thing I, think, I can- I think I agree with what you're saying. Yeah, the, the closest way that I could say this as a film experiment, and this is why I'm glad you sent it to me, and I'm glad that I own it, because I love shit like this. And you were like, oh, I can't believe you're watching both cuts. I- love shit like this and the fact that i hadn't seen it was blessed so thank you for introducing me to this paradigm but in no way is this some kind of like it gets to jump the line because it's orson wells like orson wells had his moments of genius which we've discussed and ha have also had his slight stumbles and i know dan that this film is not considered a stumble and that it was received incredibly well and people i think were mostly receptive to it being genius and that the greatest cinematic minds besides Paul eventually Verhoeven, at the time it was panned right and and i agree with paul verhoven where it's just like i can see why a studio wouldn't like this movie yeah but fuck in, them. in 1958 but fuck them but also i would have not made charlton heston a mexican and, uh, and orson welles sure. especially because he's surrounded by actual mexicans the whole time uh no that's also wrong <laughs> because everyone else who's Mexican is also doing Mexican face. Really? Of course. No. Oh, There's no. The, the main guy with the toupee is not Mexican. You'd think they would have preferred the cheaper labor. Dan, this movie is not a problem, but it's not not a problem. It's definitely not not a problem. Touch of evil. Yeah. Not not a problem. Let's agree at least at that. Yeah, for sure. A hundred percent. It's wild. This but movie as, also like, ends as with... an artifact of history. Like it doesn't get cool, much more sure. than this. But that's not allowed to be a playing card here on the Movie Blues podcast. Just because something is old doesn't mean that it gets to jump the line. That it's Orson Welles. I'm trying to look at this as, look, if you had given this disclosure, it's not a good movie. But as an artifact of early '90s culture, we love disclosure. I love this movie too because it, it was really. It's wrong-headed as wrong fuck. Wrong-headed. Yeah. <laughs> but that... And it was also very Dan Endenverse. The, the 
ultimate message of this movie was just the police are the worst. Yeah, in the which 50s. I'm totally down with. In the 50s. And and huge, huge ups to Big ups uh, Orson to Welles fucking for doing Orson it. Welles in 1957, back in our boys in any color but blue. Charlton Heston decided to not do a Mexican accent. Dude, they made a movie where the police were the bad guys. Can we talk about that, though? Uh, yeah. He, he sounds he, like Charlton Heston, he but he every now it. and then he's like, Yo quiero Taco Bell. He said at one point to his wife, We'll have to postpone that soda, I'm afraid. That's not something a Mexican would say. No. <laughs> he's... No one should mistake. Charlton Heston is doing blackface in this movie. <laughs> and he's very proud and, of it. And his unibrow that they painted on him, his fucking eyebrow merkin, is wild. But now, Dan, tell me watching this in 4K wasn't an experience. It would No, it was great. That's why I watched both cuts, because it was just like something to truly be seen. It was a racist, anti-drug, anti-police movie. Yeah, very anti-drug. Really just the trifecta of wrongheadedness. From a dude who's stumbling around wasted on set. The most enthused Orson <laughs> Welles is in this entire movie is when he asks for donuts. As soon as you get some of the donuts, please. Dude, they're in the middle of a 12-minute tracking shot, and 30 seconds of it is spent on Orson Welles being like, does he have any donuts? And they're like, we're in the middle of a murder investigation. What are you talking about? He's like, I could really use some donuts. I really think that his performance, knowing that it wasn't him just stumbling drunk through the movie, like, jokes aside, like, it's it was incredible. He's my favorite part of the movie. He's incredible. Yeah, he's amazing. My man's directing while fucking starring. Yeah, as the and acting like a crazy person. Fattest but like king on earth, dude. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever seen a fat like if you saw a graph of Here's of, the, of fatness to big dick energy yeah. have you ever seen one higher than Orson Welles fatness versus BDE in this movie he was the, the fattest, answer is no probably tell the me the person, answer is no I would guess that he was the fattest person ever to be put into a movie at that point <laughs> say that he was the fattest to big dick energy in history give me a better example job of the hut <laughs> Truly a fat king in this movie. Dude, he does not give a fuck. <laughs> this dude was given the keys to the kingdom. This is like Book of Henry, but noir. It's just like, they introduce a concept in this movie. <clears throat> it's called a mixed party. <laughs> <laughs> and what I assume they meant by mixed party <laughs> was a gang rape with drugs and heroin that took place in a hotel room. Yeah. And like they're the cops are looking into it at one point, and he's like, "Looks like we got a case of a mixed party." And I was like, "Yeah, like a party mixed with drugs." I was like, "Dude, that's <laughs> my life is a fucking mixed party. That, <laughs> that rules." Um, yeah, I mean, the other thing is like when I watched the theatrical. I watched it, and when I finished it, it was not what I thought I was going to say. Okay. I thought I was going to be like the evidence. This is what I thought I was going to say. I thought I was going to say like the evidence of a really good movie is somewhere in here. Can't wait to see <laughs> in the restored cut how they put it back together. That was not how I left viewing one. 
I left feeling one being like, I'm seeing all the cards on the table, and no matter how you shovel them, Charlton Heston is still Mexican. Well, maybe it's going to turn out that you're one of the small but very vocal contingent on Reddit that says the preview cut is the best cut. I I will report back eventually post-watching the preview cut. Hopefully there's more scenes of Orson Welles literally shoving chocolate bars yeah. in his mouth, walking with a well, cane. If you hate it, that fucking 4K set's worth like 40 bucks. I don't hate it. Like I said, this is fascinating to me. And will also be added to the holy grail of Movie Blues Podcast films. Yeah. Um, and I also want to see more special features immediately on it. Because the history of it it's just, uh, and yeah, what the it history represents is fascinating. For sure. I thank you fully for that. But, but then like, it's like, Dan, I'm, it's like not... I'm like I'm like the history proceeds like when we were going when I was going into watching, I was like, man, maybe the history really built up the hype of it. And then within 0.4 seconds, I'm presented with Tra- Charlton Heston in blackface, and I'm like, oh yeah. I watched the first cut, the theater cut, right? Yeah. And I you texted me at one point and you said, dude, that opening shot. And I was like, it's worse than the theater. I was like, cut. it's not even that good. Like thinking in my head, I was like, it's pretty, pretty non-substantial. And then that was the first thing in the, in the other cut where I was like, holy shit, because in the theatrical cut, there's credits over it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's like impossible it's to insane. enjoy it. Whereas um, that cut is amazing. And so then in the middle of the movie, yeah. there's another 12 minute cut that's just like hidden. Like the opening shot very much like jerks itself off. And it's like, look at us. We're doing a single take. Whereas in the well, middle of Well, to a degree them, that logically parts of it don't even make sense. Like, why would you put a car in a car bomb two seconds before someone got in it? Solely because they're trying to do it in one take. Yeah, for sure. Someone who's been partying. They make it seem like the couple's been partying all night at a club. And the shot includes, like, the car bomber literally putting the bomb in the trunk of the car as, like, the couple is coming around the corner. Yeah. It's just absurd. <laughs> but it's got an incredible rhythm to it. It's clearly what people like scorsese were feeding off of um later on and you know obviously pt anderson and beyond so it, it was great this I mean, movie is definitely it's more a f- of a great artifact than it is a great movie well that's what i'm saying and this is a film they would have made me watch in film school or it would have been like dope but also fuck you <laughs> like whereas i was 15 and watched it and was like in film class and was like i'm gonna go home and watch every criterion bonus feature about charlton heston in blackface so that seems misguided too dan then i watched the second cut and during the second cut i had a little bit of a mental breakdown <laughs> because i watched two cuts of basically the same movie in like one's 20 minutes longer for the record 72 hours apart and to a casual viewer they wouldn't notice half of the things that had been changed um, so I'm really mostly watching the same, like weirdly bad, incredible artifact of history again, but it felt like reentering a game that like I had lost, <laughs> but like with cheat codes the second time I was like, at least I know what I'm in for this time yeah. that there's going to be eight people pretending to be Mexican gang raping Janet Lee in a motel. <laughs> With a retarded nightman who may have participated, yeah. they make it and, very <laughs> hazy whether or not he was in. And you're on gonna it. act like this movie's not for you. Not for me in a good movie <laughs> are two very different things, Dan. While I will enjoy this in my spare time, it's not what I'm saying. Is you know what I mean? Okay. No matter which cut it is, 
Charlton Heston's first gay bash show is cursed. <laughs> the real touch of evil. Cursed. <laughs> um, another funny moment from the one shot montage is like they put a car bomb in a car and the car's driving like through this market and it's like going, the camera's going everywhere. It's awesome. But they cut back to the couple in the car and the wife is like, I'm hearing this ticking in my head. It won't stop. Yeah. There's a ticking in my head. Hey. It's like there's a just a bomb in the car, yeah. dude. It's on your head. She's like Ethel from All in the Family. That's fucking Eat ridiculous. Um, there's a bunch of insert shots of Orson Welles looking down the barrel of the camera, which is out of focus <laughs> in the restored cut. Really appreciated that. Him saying like a bunch of racist, extra bizarre shit in a row. Uh, like lit incorrectly with the audio off. So thank you. That was great. Um, the audio was incredible. <laughs> the entire outdoor scene in the restored cut, gorgeous crane shots, etc., was horrible audio, bad video presentation. Like felt like the reel was falling apart while I was watching it. <laughs> I would suggest that if you are a new watcher to this film, watch the theatrical cut. 100%, really? Hundred percent. Hundred percent. A hundred percent. I'm gonna. There's so much gonna, unnecessary, out of sync, bad photography in the restored cut that it shouldn't be considered the number one because again, Dan, much like the Snyder cut, the cut that we're seeing here isn't even the one that the original director would have made because this is after he's he was dead. dead. Yeah. So while Zack Snyder wasn't dead. He also got to go back and put things in that would have never been in his original cut. And that's what's going on here as well. So I would say, yeah, if you're a film historian, you need to start your quest with Touch of Evil. Watch the theatrical cut. And if but then you'll surely notice that the restored cut is emphatically better. And flawed and also not an official cut. But it's a better movie by a lot. Oh, yeah, by a lot. Ridiculous. By like, what, 12%? At best, 13, 18%. I'd say by like 18%, yeah. That's not a lot. That's when you watch, when you're I would watching say, a two hour movie, I would say yeah, the Snyder is. cut is a higher percent increase for one to the other. Didn't see the original. They're, the one I watched was fucking bullshit. <laughs> They're both bad. Also, much like this picture. All right, so what's your GGR? This movie's clearly based on a novel. It's messy, it's all over the place. I don't think I'm a noir fan when it gets to the point of things being convoluted for no reason and like just felt like janet lee's plot line just like flew off the rails and was so fucking bizarre and i like the end but it was no i love the end i'm not even gonna lie the whole scene in the motel room the hellscape like rape heroin injection scene <laughs> all great that's wild all incredible for its time the fact that it was in the 50s is beyond me i it really Really blows my mind. Um, there is a tracking shot of action in both cuts that I think is revolutionary where Charlton Heston in full blackface <laughs> picks up a f another person pretending to be Mexican with one arm and runs him down the length of a bar as the camera tracks backwards. Um, it was such an incredible action beat from such a fat man directing it. <laughs> it just felt so lively and incredible. I love that. I uh, love the idea of a mixed party and what happened. I think the ends were different, but I was getting so sick of it at that point that 
couldn't really parse it. Um, should we do scores? The ends um, emphasize a little bit more or less whether Orson Welles' um, partner was complicit or not. Um, I mean, it doesn't matter because ACAB. Yeah. Even if he wasn't complicit. Per- yeah, a thousand percent, including Charlton Heston. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. That's why I couldn't get into his character other than the blackface. Yeah. No, all that matters in this They're like, movie. why are we shipping one? Why are we making a movie about police corruption so deeply while shipping another cop as the good guy who is in blackface? <laughs> You're really giving up on the goodwill of what is a revolutionary premise. Close but no cigar. Dan, your score for A Touch of Evil. 7.9. That is fair. I'd say that's a realistic answer. 7.9. I'm going to go 7.5. All right. Give the man his respects. This is a movie I've watched a shocking amount of time. Me too. And uh, with that, is there anything else you'd like to add, Dan? No. Orson Welles. Legend. He's fat. He's wet. Yep. And he knows what he's doing. He's like E.T., but instead of going home, he went to Mexico (laughs) to do cocaine. What a king, dude. Go fuck yourself, all right? (laughs) (laughs) Wait. Wait. What was the one you were supposed to do? Dude, come on. Wait. What was was, Dan had a new catchphrase. (laughs) What, what was it, dude? Do you it was remember? Bada bing. Bada bing. <laughs> Just end it, dude. <laughs>